0: During Sandra's interview for this introduction, I think I may have hit on the answer to a question I have had for a long time, since the first week of this course ten months ago. Why is Sandra the best teacher I have ever had or ever known? Now, I myself have been a teacher for more than ten years. I've been in school, for one reason or another, for twenty-plus years as a student. So that's a pretty high bar. For many of us in the Fine Furniture program, Sandra is great for a lot of reasons. She's a fundamentally kind and caring person. She listens. She teaches to the individual student, not at them. She is an incredible maker and artist and naturally gifted woodworker and one of the best people inside and outside this program I have ever known. But yet, even with all that, when I put all of these reasons together, I find they are necessary for her incredible skill at teaching this course, but not sufficient. There is something else. In Sandra's words, the Fine Furniture Program, quote, "...fundamentally changed who I am and my belief system and what I hold to be dear and how I see the world. Whether I'm walking into the grocery store or the forest... It really changed me that much, so I know it's changing other people, and it's for the good. What we find here, what we do is, I think, there's a spiritual basis to it, and I don't really talk about that in those terms, but it's, it's kind of a calling for me, end quote. This is why Sandra is the GOAT, the greatest of all time. And I'm serious about that. Why do people love Georgia O'Keeffe, Aretha Franklin, Vincent Van Gogh? Not because of their brush strokes or vocal range, but because of how those artists make you feel. Sandra makes her students feel like they can create beautiful things. She makes us believe in ourselves, believe we can try new things and tap into talents we didn't even know we had. Sandra is an incredible artist and woodworker in her own right, but she has elevated teaching itself to an art form. In Pedagogy of the Oppressed, Paulo Freire wrote, quote, there's no such thing as neutral education. Education either functions as an instrument to bring about conformity or freedom, End quote. Sandra frees people to be the very best versions of themselves. The world needs a whole lot more of that. Here's my interview with Sandra Carr. Sandra.
1: Joel.
0: El jefe. (laughs) (laughs) This is it. This is the end of the project.
1: Am I the last one?
0: You're the last one. You're the last one and the best one. Okay. How relieved are you to get this over with?
1: Pretty relieved. I
0: figured. <laughs> um, so I'm going to ask you uh, probably many different questions than I ask other people. Some same, some different. Sure. I think what would be best if you could just sort of narrate like college to now. <laughs> like, can you sort of encapsulate
1: <laughs> oh, boy, okay. what
0: brought you here? And I would love for that to include like teaching Mm. Art, woodworking, trade, and like, how did you, how did you get here?
1: Right, well... And
0: maybe it was before college, I don't know.
1: No, it wasn't before college. Okay. Um, in high school, I thought I was going to be a scientist. I really liked chemistry and did like the advanced chemistry. Um, I ended up going to SFU for a year on scholarship, and then realized that living on campus at SFU is not great. Um, and I came back and went to UVic. So I have like half a university degree. And I kind of switched partway through and was floating around, couldn't quite like see what I wanted to do. And then um, my girlfriend at the time was taking the carpentry foundation program here. And so that's how I found out about fine furniture. And I thought, oh, I just I can't figure out what I want to do. I can't see making a career. So I'll just take a year off and do this.
0: Had you made anything before that?
1: I think grade eight woodworking yeah. was about it. Uh, my father would be handy around the house and I'd occasionally like hold the end of a board. But I was pretty tomboy out in the backyard and making forts. But no, I wasn't really interested in in that. Didn't do it in high school. Did um, you have
0: any artists in your family or any no. tradespeople in your family? Nope. Interesting. So just on a whim. Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah. So I had no outside influences. Yeah, it was on a whim, because it was different, and I'd only done academics, really. I took the program. What year was that? 96, 97. Um, And I fell in love. I fell in love with making. When? I think right from the beginning.
0: Like from the first day?
1: First day was pretty intimidating. Yeah. Because we had to do introductions and I realized, oh, wow, a lot of people like know a lot of stuff about this.
0: Now you know how I felt that first (laughs) day. (laughs) Yeah,
1: and I just like, it was literally like, I'll just, I don't know, I'll try this. And I had to do a portfolio. So I I had a little bit of time and I, I don't know, went to the library, I'm sure, and grabbed some books out and hand dovetailed this shitty little pine box together that I'm pretty sure my father still has. Um, And did, I don't know, I don't know what I did, but it was enough to like, kind of get in there. Mm -hmm. So that was like the sum of my experience. Um,
0: So when did you fall in love?
1: As soon as I realized that it was this amazing marriage of like, thinking, and working with all of the theory, and designing, and like, there's the real cognitive part of it that I don't think most people outside of trades understand um and then i was making stuff with my hands it's like oh this is tangible and the feeling of accomplishment of being able to do something and see these pretty cool results was like it's kind of addictive Mm -hmm. (laughs) i think um
0: did you go home and i assume you went home and maybe spoke to your partner your family and did you tell them hey I think I've found my calling? I think I found what I want to do?
1: That I think came a little bit later. I sort of just focused on doing what I needed to do at at school. Um and there wasn't a part of it that I didn't love. Mm. Like Nothing? No, I can see the I could see the value in maybe plastic laminate. That's it's nice. like, eh, well, I don't know. That's not very exciting, but um Hand tools I struggle with a bit, so I, I get the, we have to learn how to use a hand plane, and the thing just frustrated the hell out of me, as it's, it's difficult to learn. Um, so those experiences definitely inform how I kind of try and teach it now. Um, and it wasn't until years later that I'm like, okay, I'm a craftsperson, and I want to make all this stuff, and this is necessary, so I kind of brushed it off and just decided, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and master this now. Yeah.
0: So you, did, you went through the whole class with Cam and Ken?
1: Uh, just Cam. Just Cam. I, Ken wasn't teaching yet. Did you have
0: any inkling when you were in the class that one day you would be succeeding in? Of course not. No? No. You never no. thought you'd be a teacher?
1: No, but I'm not surprised that I am at the same time. Why not? Because I've always loved school. I love learning stuff. I love the environment. Um like I actually really liked high school, the the school part of it. Um some of my university classes less so cuz a lecture hall with 300 other yeah. first years it's like it's not it's not the greatest. Um but I just I realized I've always like felt this connection with teachers as well and like just valued the experience of getting to just participate in learning like in that environment i really like that
0: and after the class you and a friend from the class started your own business was that right after the class
1: uh no i kind of worked a little bit in industry
0: like a cabinet shop
1: no i never i've never worked at a cabinet shop I worked for this um, this guy's name's Dave Helland, and he did a lot of heritage restoration, window and doors. Oh, that's right. Um, <clears throat> so I worked for him under the table for cash. Uh, a lot of breaking of edges and priming. Um, and he was very uh, gentle and encouraging. And unflappable. So it didn't matter if I made a mistake, he would just show me how to correct it.
0: Were you at all disillusioned when you went from this class into industry? Because I could see how, for some people, that might be a disillusioning experience. I feel I'm not going in that direction, but I feel like if it were, it, I would be disillusioned.
1: Well, that's why I ended up working for myself, I think. I didn't even really go into industry too much. I worked at, um, after I finished up with Dave, I went and worked at this small upstart manufacturing company and within i don't know four to six months he went bankrupt what um, were you
0: manufacturing
1: he was trying to do furniture but it was just kind of a it's kind of a weird i don't know i don't know what we were doing It was a bit weird um but i got a i got a little bit of experience there um it's funny because I drive by the the place that I worked all the time on my bike and I look over and it's United Rentals now right off Kelvin Street. And I remember like, oh yeah, I used to sit on the the bay there. And that's the sum total of my industry experience. So after I got laid off, um, I kind of put out a resume or two, but this is kind of funny now, but the thought of like going and working in industry and having to look for a job kind of was intimidating to me. And I'm fairly introverted (laughs) or was at the time so i decided to start my own business which of course is kind of hilarious because why
0: is that hilarious
1: well because you have to put yourself out there you have to get work you have like there's so many things that you have to do that are like just outside of yourself that are that require that sort of confidence and being able to talk to people and clients and all that
0: and i know you'll brush this off because you are nothing if not modest but more than one person has told me that what you and joe did you did it better than anybody else ever did it wow why why is that what was the secret ingredient or secret ingredients for you and joe to make such a successful business for how many years was it
1: i think it was about 15 i was out yeah we each had our own businesses before we met so i was like making a go of it on my own and so was he and then Yeah, I think it was at least 15 years. I'm not good with dates and numbers, so around then. What made it so good? I I think we were just so passionate about what we were doing. And doing it with someone else, like to have that support and be able to talk things through, it just made it fun. Like, it was really fun to get clients and go through like the whole the whole thing Um,
0: did you guys or even now today with you and beth do you ever talk about that passion because sometimes i feel like artists and makers have that passion but it always seems to go unstated or undiscussed Mm. and i feel like that's a really interesting thing to sort of dissect and sort of uh, examine in detail, like the fact that you had this passion and were able to make it in a successful business for 15 years, did you ever sit back and reflect on where that
1: came from? We just had it. Yeah. Yeah, just had it. I think we inspired each other. Um, so I I have great respect for like a lot of the skill that Joe has and that he he brought to us um and i know that he respects me a lot so we just had that like hey i like what you're doing hey i like what you're doing and we started working on the odd thing together and just for the most part that part of our working relationship was was pretty easy like we we just clicked that way
0: why did you wrap it up after 15 years
1: oh you know big life changes just our relationship had run its course uh-huh. and it was just time to move on just time for change
0: what was the most enjoyable part about running your own fine
1: furniture business mm-hmm. the most enjoyable oh there's so many there's some less enjoyable parts well, that's too. my next question that's <laughs> the next question okay um, you can
0: answer that first if you want uh,
1: no I'll also I'll, I'll lead with the good okay um, oh my god look what we Look what I got to do to earn my way in the world. I got to work with clients because that was most of our business. um, We would like meet people. They like what we did. They would commission us to make something. So it wasn't completely like self-directed, which some craftspeople are. It's like, here's what I'm making. I'll put it in a gallery. People will buy it. All
0: of your stuff was commissioned?
1: We did a little bit of the latter. Um, but a lot of it was commissioned, but people would see what we had done, which was very much ours and be like, yeah, I want that. So we're pretty, pretty enviable. We weren't like given plans off, you know, here, can you make this? That's not really what we did. It was, we will design for you. So being able to work with people and, um, like design really cool stuff that we wanted to make and then have someone pay us to do it and work at home we didn't always have a place like we had other shops but um it's just so rewarding like you've had the experience of now having an idea or coming to an idea because that is a process in and of itself right it's not just like bing i'm going to make this there's there's work behind that so doing the work to figure out like what wh- framing the problem and then coming up with a design And then doing all of the design work and back and forth to client, if there is back and forth, and then actually like executing it and seeing the final product and then delivering it to usually very ecstatic, Hmm. enthusiastic clients. Like that's just, it's, there's something very tangible and also intangible about that.
0: One of the things I love the most, and I'm wondering if if this is part of what you're talking about, is when I bring something home and I show it to Haley or somebody else, and they say, and I can see it in their eyes and hear it in the tone of their voice, oh my gosh, how did you do that? And the fact that I can do something that almost seems like magic, I find so incredibly rewarding. Does that does that strike a tone with you
1: oh 100 well most most people i shouldn't use absolutes but a a lot of people have never done for themselves they can't change a tire they can't fix their plumbing they don't sew their own clothes some people like we can now open an app and order meals pre-done to our to our doors right and we don't none of it's real me. In addition to
0: that feeling, why is it important to sew your own clothes and change your own tire?
1: It's kind of a philosophy of living, I think. If we rely on the exterior world, then we don't have that confidence in being able to kind of make our way, I think. And for me now, I mean, I reflect on this a lot, looking at, the state of the planet i think we're partly in this because we have externalized um, where things come from right (laughs) we don't see where they come from we don't we don't appreciate what we have like we just we throw stuff away it's like well if you've had the experience of spending even half a day making a thing You're not going to throw it out. You're going to appreciate it a little bit. And I've had the experience of spending like months making one thing. So I, I look at like every single thing that I purchase, every single thing I think about. Should I, like, what is this? What is the effect of me purchasing this? Where did it, Mm -hmm. where did it come from? Is it going to, what's its end of life? And that's not really new for me. Um, and being a maker has just created that for me. And had I not gone this route, I don't, I don't know that I would think that way.
0: When did you start thinking that way? When did you realize that you start, you were starting to think like a maker as opposed to a college student or Mm -hmm. a biologist or a chemist or something you might've been in another universe?
1: Oh, that's a good question. I remember in my second shop that I had on my own, going through a project that I'd built and nothing bad had happened. (laughs) Like I hadn't really made any sizable mistakes. I knew how to do everything that I needed to do. It was like, oh, this is kind of what could happen for me, like that it wouldn't be a struggle. Mm. Because when you're learning and... Like the, the 10 months I spent was amazing, but then you're out on your own. I had no prior experience. Like some, a lot of the people in this program, they come in with years of, of that prior learning. I had none of that. I had 10 months and, and to make things on my own, there's nobody to ask. And so it it was hard. Um, so that was kind of, I think I, I remember where I was standing and that I can't remember what the project was, but just that feeling of, Oh, Wow. I just did that, and it worked, and it went well, and I'm happy with it and yeah i I just made something worthwhile and it felt really good
0: and that's when you really started to feel like a maker for the first time,
1: yeah, yeah, and I had my own shop, and people were starting to pay me to do stuff, and just that exchange like that that's real, like making stuff in school is one thing, but then to be asked to make something, and for me the the very first time of telling someone what the cost was going to be that was huge it was really huge and so like gut-wrenching to put out like i'm going to ask you for this amount of money and i'm sure it was like minuscule i was gonna say do you remember how
0: nonchalant they took it because i'm sure they didn't bat an eye
1: (laughs) no no yeah
0: i want to go back to what you said about the state of the world hmm. being what it is because we don't make our own things anymore, which I agree with 100%. And part of me, though, wonders, did we have a choice? Individually, of course, we have a choice. But you know, living in a world where people are different and some people have kids and screaming babies, and they just want to get food on the table as quickly and as painlessly as possible so they can, you know, go back to their second job or change the baby's diaper.
1: Oh, totally. Totally. Like,
0: could it could it have been different, I wonder? For I know it could have been different for individuals, but could it have been different for the world?
1: Hmm. I, I don't know. I think the industrial revolution just, it just changed. It changed everything. And, um, you're, we're, we're brought up in it and we live in it and exist in it. And it's kind of like the the frog in the frying pan or whatever, right? It's, you have to get to that place where you can see what a glimpse of the alternative could be. So I, I fully own that what I said comes from a place of pri- privilege and being able to reflect and, yeah, I mean, we have to do what we have to do to get by. No no judgment there. But my feeling of frustration comes when I need to go grocery shopping. And like, you can try and not exist with plastic, but man, is it ever hard. And I don't buy things and I spend more money because I can buying the unbundled vegetables or whatever instead those, of in those stupid mesh bags. And I I know it's like the tiniest thing, but I can, so I, so I do.
0: When did you first start to think about becoming a teacher Mm. and why?
1: It was a really long time ago. I meant to look that up, but I think it was around like Joe and I started our business in, I think 2001, I think it was around 2004, from around there and I just asked cam like oh there's continuing studies happening at the college like what's sort of the process to to do that uh, and that's how I started and I think I needed to get out of the house because working just with your partner in a little shop is both idyllic and also I just I wanted to open well, the up. shop was in the shop the was on the property that you lived in a uh, separate building, but on but on, the, on a five-acre property up in Cowichan. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, I would just like to get out and do a little bit of something different. it was diversifying my income a little bit and just wanting to share kind of what I thought maybe I could share.
0: So how did you beginners. start dipping your toe in that water?
1: I went to a planning meeting and said, oh, I maybe have this idea for a little course. They're like, oh yeah, great. Okay, we'll schedule. When can we schedule it? I was like, really, it was that easy. No
0: one Oh, Oh, this was the the the
1: continuing studies,
0: right? That it that was discontinued. Turned. During... Yes. Okay, yeah. I heard about this.
1: COVID killed yes. that that whole thing. Right. So anyway, that was my my into teaching. And okay. I was like, oh, I like this. This is this is pretty fun. Um, and the best thing about it was just seeing people. Um, having that experience that I described for myself of this epiphany of like, wow, I just made something and it's so much fun and it's it's rewarding. Um, so I would do that a lot of Saturdays. It was just like one day a week, courses here and there.
0: While you were still running the business. Yeah. Oh, yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah. And then... Um,
0: when did it become a thought of maybe I'll do this full time and wind down the business?
1: Mm, I was teaching a class and Ken was in on a Saturday and I just popped up to his office and I said, Ken, what would you need to teach this program? He's the one of the instructors and he said well you need to have your red seal and you need to get your instructional diploma I'm like oh okay and uh so i went away and thought about it and went well i don't know what the future holds but maybe i'll just do both of those things neither of which i had i was it was a very and it was seven years
0: to do both of those things
1: yeah seven wow. it took me seven years to kind of complete them and sort of get that stuff squared away and then shortly after
0: and you did that seven-year process with an eye towards teaching this class not yeah. just teaching in general but teaching teaching this class.
1: this class yeah yeah
0: did you know that ken and cam were, were going to be retiring at a certain point and that was i didn't
1: know when but i knew they would yeah. retire i knew it that a position would come up uh-huh. and i yeah i think it was about seven years that since from the time that I was like, yeah, I want to do that to till, till they retired. And I sort of had everything in place.
0: During those seven years, did you ever start second guessing your choice? No. Really? Why not?
1: I just wanted to do it.
0: You just wanted I, to teach the class?
1: I wanted to teach the class.
0: Was it competitive that other people apply?
1: Uh, yes.
0: Why do you think you got the job?
1: I think I understood... The interview process was about not being the greatest furniture maker in the world, but being a good teacher and knowing how to prepare a lesson. So for my interview, I had to teach a lesson to the panel on hand-cutting dovetails. How did that go? Oh, I was pretty nervous. and
0: Did they actually have to do it?
1: No, okay. but I had to do a lesson on it.
0: Like a demo and everything.
1: Yeah, and it was participatory in a way and... Yeah, so I like structured it all, hitting all the points that they want you to do, like pre-assessment and post-assessment and, you know, like all that sort of stuff. Um, so I felt like I did really well at that. And, and a lot of the people question sort of stuff. Yeah, but I think there's three or four people interviewing me. It's pretty intimidating. I don't imagine. Mm-hmm.
0: What is your, I know this is a tough, I mean, they're all kind of tough to answer, but... What is your philosophy of teaching? How do you approach the concept? What are your guiding principles?
1: Mm -hmm. Um, Respect. Probably number one.
0: Why is that number one?
1: Well, it's nothing without respecting each other. And I try and identify what it is that people want to get out of the learning process like why are you here and what is it that you want to learn and what 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 is your desired outcome cuz there's there's the outcome that the college wants to see or the skill trades bc which funds most of our program there's like all of the kind of dry dry stuff i want to get a job i want this and that but then there's like the sort of the deeper stuff like the professional development and like you for instance you're not going to go get an apprenticeship in a cabinet shop so joel is here for a different reason so the way that i approach everyone is informed by kind of why they're here and i don't always know why they're here but i do ask like and some some of it's kind of obvious how does
0: that change because i i i a hundred percent. I can see that you're aware of that. How does that change your approach? So I'm here for, I guess, quote unquote, for fun to, to, mm-hmm. to learn how to do this better as a, a hobby. Connor's here to do this as a profession. I yes. still want to learn everything and yeah. Connor still wants to learn everything. So you're not changing what you teach, but how does that inform how you approach me versus Connor?
1: Well, I think for Connor, I might lean on him more if his, like some of his assignments, maybe that he, if he didn't hand in something that was really important to one of the industry training authority learning outcomes, and I know that he wants to like work for himself and work for someone else, I'd be like, hey, where's your production path Mm -hmm. for this done in this particular way? Whereas like for you might be, okay, well, I need you to do it to show me that you can do it, but, you know, you want to learn this this other thing, hey, let's focus on that as well. Got it. And just flex. I guess my, one of my other sort of things I try and really keep in mind is just being flexible. Um, as people have stuff going on outside of here, and uh, I just like to give people leeway, I guess, to, like... From listening, I've listened to all of the other, most of the other interviews, and one of the things I kind of wanted to say for the record was, I am actually making sure everyone is achieving the learning outcomes (laughs) of level one cabinet maker joiner, because listening to them, like, for instance, Austin said, being here, my best is good enough, right? And that, like, so many things have hit me from the interview, like, my best is good enough, It's like, yeah, but you also achieved what you needed to achieve to be here. And I think when you give people space to like take their time a little bit and figure out how to navigate something that's really not easy to learn um, and make allowances for different learning styles, then it just sort of happens that people show up and get the work done and learn what needs to be learned.
0: So you sort of. If not totally answered my follow-up question, which was you do that better than anybody I've ever seen, which is you do make sure that the learning outcomes are achieved and people learn what they need to learn. But at the same time, you do not do it in a way that's overbearing or confrontational or aggressive. And how how do you do that so well? I
1: don't know. (laughs) I'm not. I'm not sure. Um
0: I have I have a hunch. I have, I have a word uh, on this. I don't it.
1: like confrontation, so I like to come up with a collab, like more of a collaborative environment. And I don't see myself as like I am the instructor and you are all students. Yeah. Like there is an a. I equi- I feel like there's an equality there. Like I have the responsibility of guiding us all through the program. But to me it feels like a, I want it to be. A collaborative process between your learning what you want to learn what we're kind of slated to learn and then all of the soft stuff in between right
0: and i think add to that a very healthy dollop of patience yeah because you are an incredibly patient person
1: yeah that helps too
0: i think that has to be yeah well how could i not be though
1: Oh, How can I, you be a teacher and not be patient? I'm not.
0: I mean, it's, that's yeah. a struggle for me. That's yeah. a struggle. That's a struggle that I constantly have to be aware of when I teach. I think yeah. you're under... Uh, once again, I think you're underestimating <laughs> your skills. Yeah. yeah, I think that's...
1: There are a few things that frustrate me where I don't feel patient.
0: Like what? Without, obviously... You don't need to oh, name no. Names, but.
1: There's one thing, and that's when I'm very specific with people. Like, you need to do it this way for a particular reason. And... They think that my 27 years of experience somehow, like, I wouldn't know this, and they'll do it their own way. And I do, like, really encourage experiment, like, okay, fine, you want you have an idea and you want to try that? Sure, but when I'm, like, specifically, like, hey, do this first, and the person, for whatever reason, just decides, oh, no, I'm going to do it this way, and then it's a total disaster, it's like, well... You know, I know what I'm talking about. It's not my first rodeo. Like, come on.
0: Here's an uncomfortable question you're not gonna like.
1: <laughs> awesome.
0: <laughs> How m- much of that do you think you would experience if you were a man?
1: Oh yeah, Beth and I speak about this. Less. I feel How much less. I feel less.
0: A lot less, a little less.
1: A medium less.
0: Medium less. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's subtle. It is subtle, but Beth thinks it's less subtle. Um, she's worked in, yeah, she has a wide range of work experience and she's very keen and direct and, and, and calls it out. It's like, yeah, that's, yeah, Sandra, they wouldn't be saying that if you were a man. And she watched, yeah, she's just observed. And so that, that's there.
0: How do you handle that dynamic as a teacher? Because I would imagine In a workplace, if you were dealing with an equal, you could, you know, tell them to fuck off and, you know, stop being a a sexist pig. You're a teacher, and so I'm pretty sure you have to adopt different strategies.
1: Yes. I'm not sure I quite have it figured. I don't think I have it figured out yet. Um, I do... I do think there's creating a culture in the classroom where if you have the majority that it, that is like participating in that culture, then it actually puts those few people on the outside instead of being the majority. And that changes the balance on the whole.
0: You've been teaching for six years?
1: This program's so yeah, six Has
0: years. That- Change substantially? Has it gotten better? I guess is a simpler way of asking
1: that. Every year's different. Yeah. Yeah. Every year's different. It just depends. And it's usually it, it's very, it's subtle, right? So you're like, hey, did that person just say that or did that just happen? What was that? And and is it because of my gender or not? Because you don't always know, right? And so I try and one of my mottos is to just assume the best in people. Which that's I think serves me well. Yeah, seems the best. Motto. Yeah.
0: What do you like most about teaching this class? And you can't say everything. The people. What about them?
1: Oh, well, they're just so interesting. Yeah. I get this new group of 18 individuals every September, and I'm just like almost gleeful like, mm-hmm. who's going to be in the class this year? Because the type of person that it attracts. Um, I don't know it's just it's it's good there's a really interesting mix of people every year and I get to experience a bit of their lives and their backgrounds and what they bring into the into the space and that I find one of the like most fun things is just those those relationships I um, mean getting to know people and And then also sharing and seeing people grow, like sharing all the technical knowledge that I have and the how-to and the safety and and all of that. And then the way the program is structured for the self-directed creative um, design work that we do, that's probably my second favorite favorite part is, is seeing what people come up with and watching them develop in that way and gain confidence and just make amazing things
0: what part of the curriculum is yours that you didn't inherit from your predecessors that you're the most proud of and maybe it's not a project maybe it's an approach or a philosophy
1: yeah that's hard to pin down i have been changing i fiddle with the projects quite a lot quite a lot um which I need to stop doing because it's incredibly time consuming, but I haven't hit upon the perfect thing yet. Um gosh, I don't know. Like there was so much in the program that was amazing. Like I inherited this um this curriculum and structure and assignments that was so revered. Like this program is so well loved by people. Um and I was terrified at taking it on and like messing it up so my first year i changed like almost nothing and then i started just bringing in little things just like curriculum wise some updated practices and new tools and machinery um sustainable design and that is something that's that i've been bringing in more and more that's mine just talking about where materials come from and longevity and um that's important to me, um, and just talking too about like diversity and inclusion, and that's definitely something that I've been focusing on more and more.
0: It's a great segue. So I talked about this with Beth, and on the one hand, one of my favorite parts of being in this program is its diversity. I mean, I would have never been in a room with Somebody like Kat or somebody like Connor or somebody like Dustin, I just I just wouldn't have. Mm-hmm. We wouldn't have hung out socially and we wouldn't have hung out professionally. And yet, you know, uh, if I send my friends pictures of the program back home and I talk about how wonderfully diverse this class is, which it is, they'll look at these pictures and say, what are you talking about? There's, there's no diversity here whatsoever, mm-hmm. which is also true in a different yes. way. How do you... I, don't, I guess how do you think about that? How do you balance that? How does that inform your your approach to the class?
1: Oh that's a big question yeah well, I kind of have to i can i get i get people right like I don't control like how they come to the program and what their interest is. I have heard from a surprising number of people that have said, I've taken, I chose this program because you're the instructor, which is like really flattering, but not really because, because I'm a woman, they didn't want to, I won't name the person, but someone said, I'm tired of learning from old white men, was what, was what he said. And it was a, he was like, oh, that's pretty cool. So I think in, in the, like, it is pretty unusual to have a woman teaching a trades program. I haven't done it yet, but if I add up, how many instructors there are at this college in trades and how many female instructors, it's like kind of one hand, maybe six fingers. Hmm. So I think just by me kind of leading the program, there's a bit of an opening To that. And the college does a lot of work around women in trades, and there's like funding. And so that's all really good. I would like there to be more opportunity for an even greater diversity. And I guess it speaks to like just attracting just a a greater segment of the population. But if we're talking about like ages, got that covered, right? Uh backgrounds. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Education, right? There's a huge range of education from people who've just graduated high school to people with PhDs, right? Like all the time.
0: Multiple people, myself included, have talked about how wonderful it is to have two women, you and Beth in particular, teaching this program Mm -hmm. and how much just objectively better it is than other experiences in which you're taught by old white men. On the one hand, I'm not a gender essentialist and I don't believe in gender essentialism. On the other hand, what is it that makes it so much better? Because I do think it's objectively better, Hmm. but again, I don't, it's not because of your chromosomes.
1: Oh, I don't think that's I think a different woman could teach it would do it differently. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's an absolute, but I don't know, that's a hard question to answer. I am who I I am who I am and maybe because I'm keenly aware of the inequity in mm. the world, the the wider world, um and then I can hone in on my Little area of trades in particular that it is like changing, but it, it's definitely still very male dominated. Um, and, and I realized I'm it's I'm kind of in the process of realizing and implementing that I can be outspoken about the things that I believe in.
0: Were um, you hesitant to do that?
1: I was. Why? confidence, I think. Who who am I to be and and fear too, like fear of how it's going to be received. Yeah. And just I'm not I'm not an expert in this. I've you know, I don't have a a degree in gender studies um or anything of that nature. I just sort of know what I know and and believe what I believe. And I just I kind of thought like, hey, maybe I can start doing just a little bit more, just pushing a little bit. Because I, I think that that pushing coming from me, especially for younger people, is going to make a difference. Like, like it's, it's one thing to be, to say you're an ally to whatever, we'll say gender, but that's not enough. Like I learned this teaching, there was, I had an incident that happened my first or second year of teaching between a couple of students and it fundamentally changed like with the way that I manage and, and advocate for um, respect in in the classroom and with that happening I just yeah I decided that I needed to be not just going along with saying we need to respect each other but actually like what does that mean because if on day one there's all the day one stuff right oh here's the policy of the college around um you know academic integrity and equity diversity inclusion it's like yeah yeah no one no one really listens but i take care to talk about what that means like okay well in this classroom here's how we're going to treat each other So that it's proactive instead of reacting to something that may happen.
0: I find it interesting that you said, who am I? I'm not a gender studies professor. But you are a woman who's been on this earth and teaching and in the industry for decades and decades and decades. Why do you or did you feel like that wasn't enough?
1: Yeah, good question. I don't know. Pretty humble, I guess. (laughs) Just sort of like I said, I just sort of do what I I do what I do and I don't I don't know, I'm not outspoken about my accomplishments, I guess. Yeah. So it's just, yeah, it's a process of kinda owning what I can do. And I'm starting to starting to do that.
0: What is your most frustrating what is the most frustrating part of this job for you time what do you
1: mean spending enough time with individuals to to help them do what they need to do Mm -hmm. so both in the classroom and in the shop for sure there's 18 students and one of me and uh this is so indiv like what we're doing is so individualized. Like to learn, for example, how to use a hand plane. Like you can watch all the YouTube in the world, you can listen to me talk about it. And then you go to your bench and you try and do it. And <laughs> Oh,
0: I had that I had this exact experience <laughs> with hand planes. It's
1: like, why is this yep. godforsaken thing not working? <laughs> I'm doing, I think I'm doing all the things. Yeah. So it's Like, there's no way to sort of figure that out that doesn't take you. I mean, of course, you could figure it out. You can go back. You can kind of like troubleshoot. But sometimes 30 seconds of me helping Mm -hmm. has the result of you just, it was the big thing that you needed to know to go on. So, just yeah, just there's a lot of students and a lot of that sort of one on one that I want to be doing. So, I try my best to get around to everyone every day. And um, I also encourage the class to help each other. Mm. And one of the things I've learned by teaching is that it's just the best way to learn. Mm. So, if you, even though you already know something, so Connor for example Connor knows how to do all sorts of things but to teach someone else how to do it you often have to think about it critically in a way that maybe you hadn't to be able to explain it to someone else they might not understand the first time so you have to come up with a different way of explaining it and in that in that teaching there's a you create a greater understanding for yourself and so while I want to be there for everyone all the time. I can't, but, it, and it just happens organically in this class that people help each other. Um, so I'm, I'm just okay with that now. It's like, I can't be everywhere at once. So it's also important to learn how to do for yourself and figure stuff out. So I figure there's, there's a little bit of helping each other, a bit of figuring it out yourself and then me helping and of course, Beth, um, who helps a ton, even though it's not actually quite in her job description, Um, but she does.
0: Even more heroic of her.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Has teaching this class over the last six years, right? Has teaching this class over the last six years changed how you feel about trade and art? Mm. Or trade or art?
1: I've learned a lot more about art.
0: Have your tastes changed?
1: My appreciation has changed. Uh, when I was in school, I remember going through the furniture history. i just like not getting it. Like, I'm not into this stuff, right? And so, no offense to Cam, he's an amazing teacher. It just, like a lot of people, don't respond to Chippendale or, you know, medieval tables or, or whatever. It's not, it's not our style or not the style they're drawn to, but I have just sort of through having to, f- I've wanted to find a way to make it relatable and to, to, to figure out like, well, why are we even learning this, right? How is this relevant? And it is relevant. And just, I've been having fun with bringing in examples of like makers that are looking to history, to um like foster designs, and they're they're doing really amazing things. It's like, look, there's kind of a real. I actually forgot what the question was. What am I answering?
0: Has your taste oh, trade or art
1: trade change. or art? Yeah, yeah. So I I think I have a I definitely have a greater appreciation for furniture history, and that was like so Ken's thing. He was just he loved furniture history. He had an art history degree. Um, and so he really was passionate about that part of the program and it's in the curriculum for sure. And it was one of the daunting things when I took over. It was like, oh my gosh, I have to teach furniture history. Uh. So it was like some serious research and, and uh, kind of brushing up on, on my part. And it's was like, oh, this is really, this is really cool. And uh- then I, I just being a maker and a designer, just my interest in all things art and design just blossomed.
0: Great, so this will be an easy one. What is art?
1: Oh, I knew you were going to ask this. I don't think there's one definition. I think there's a lot of different kinds of art. Um, I think art is often an expression of ideas. Mm. I think it's a very human endeavor. It's like kind of speaks to our humanity and expressing our humanity. I've struggled myself with like, am I an artist? I don't know. I t-
0: why are you, why would you doubt that? Considering you've spent twenty plus years making things, mm-hmm. why are you still doubting well, what, if you're an artist?
1: I sometimes just think about what is what is a designer versus what is an artist, or what huh. is design versus what is art. What and, is the
0: difference? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think I heard kind of a neat someone's take on this, and art was. It comes from the maker without outside influence, so the maker comes up with it or has an idea and expresses it. Whereas design was more um, externally driven. Someone has a problem or a brief and asks you to to solve that problem and, and work within parameters. And I can understand. I can I can kind of understand that.
0: What do you think of my favorite William Morris quote? That. Mm. Art is the pleasure we take in our labor.
1: Yes, that's an interesting one. I think it's very much a product of the time that William Morris was existing in. How so? Well, Industrial Revolution, when basically the world changed and people were disenfranchised from their work that they had done. We'd gone from cottage industries and small scale, and if you were a blacksmith, you would take care of the whole process of blacksmithing and it was a family tradition and you would have learned maybe from your father and your grandfather and you had that pleasure and pride in in what you did and then the industrial revolution happened and there was the massive unskilling of labor um, and the stratifying of work into you're gonna do this one operation and all of the social ills that that followed
0: do you so think it, so? It's not as relevant today as it was when he said it.
1: I think it's relevant in a new way. Oh,
0: interesting. What way?
1: I think that the resurgence of, I guess, what we would call maker culture now is is the next. It's the next reaction. So much of history and design movements, as we've looked at, they're reactions to something. That happened. Arts and crafts style and movement was a reaction to the Industrial Revolution. I think the current maker culture is a reaction to technology, right? If you're, I think it probably can be rewarding to sit at a computer all day if the work you're engaged in is something that you want to be doing. Depends on what you're doing. Say if you're a writer, if you're a novelist and you're writing a novel on a computer i imagine that could be incredibly fulfilling but a lot of the the work that's being done again it's like kind of divorced from our humanity yeah. like it doesn't feel it never feels natural to me to like stare at that thing for however long in my phone and it's all kind of i don't know soulless mm-hmm. so i think people are looking for something that's like real mm-hmm. again Something real, something tangible, something pert like something they can be prideful in
0: great lead into my next question, which you and I I think have discussed a couple of times now, and I would love to get your reflections on tape, which is my conviction that this is actually not a woodworking course <laughs> at least not You're gonna primarily. get me in trouble Joel. a woodworking course no because I think it's i I think it's. That doesn't do the course justice. And it is, it is my submission that woodworking is an incredibly important but secondary effect. And that the primary effect that you have, for so many reasons, including that you're such a wonderful teacher, is you make people better in who they are. You bring out the best in them through wood as a medium.
1: Yeah. Well, it did that for me. It did that for me. I... Wow, it just changed my life. Like cha- it fundamentally changed who I am and my belief system and what I hold to be dear and how I see the world, whether I'm walking into the grocery store or the forest. Like it really changed me that much. Yeah. So I know it's changing other people. Um and it's for the good. Like what what we find here and what we do is... I think there's a spiritual basis to it. And I don't talk... I don't really talk about that in those terms. But... It's a... It's kind of calling for me, I think. And for a lot of people. And even... I like to think that even if they don't continue on and do this, that spending this time here is really worthwhile to develop like so many things patience, appreciation, tolerance. Tolerance. Yeah.
0: Speaking of the spiritual side of it,
1: mm-hmm.
0: if I asked you to make me something sacred to you, what would you make?
1: Mm-hmm. I've thought about this one a lot. I have made sacred things. My first, can I answer, can I give two answers? Please. Because I have two things.
0: Yeah, I would love to hear both.
1: I would like to make a ring, a wooden ring, for my partner, Rain. That would be the first thing.
0: What would the ring look like?
1: It will be made out of Pernambuco, which is quite a rare hardwood that they make cello bows out of and she's a musician and a fiddler so i think that would be pretty cool
0: would it be inscribed at all
1: oh boy that would be interesting be like that japanese where you you know they do the carving on the grains of rice maybe i could learn how to do that on the inside yeah i think fairly simple it will have to be cross banded for short grain wood movement. So there will <laughs> be there, there yes. I have many technical things to work out, but I will figure out what to do it how, or how to do it. So that is something that I will make. Um,
0: What's the other one?
1: Oh, it may sound a little silly. <laughs> I have this dream of taking my hand tools to the forest and spending like a week. We'll, camping out in the forest and felling a tree and building probably a chair.
0: I think that's a gorgeous dream. Why haven't you done that?
1: Time. Time Time is the big one.
0: A green stick chair.
1: Yeah, but but staying out there. And it would be like, I think a devotional act, like a, a long meditation. Because I find woodworking with hand tools is very, it is very meditative. Um, if you've ever used a hand plane in silence, the the sound and the rhythm and then the smell, depending on what you're planing, is very rich.
0: I don't get that from hand planing because I still find hand planing beyond frustrating. Mm-hmm. But I very much get that from... Um, chiseling
1: yes same same kind of idea
0: very much get that from Mm -hmm. carving out some dovetail yeah or cleaning up corners
1: yeah i feel like making with intention with great intention would be my um sacred would be this would be sacred just like quilts i think of quilts as having the potential to be sacred objects that someone makes for you, like someone making you a quilt, like that is the coolest thing. Yeah. Um, so I, I can see like making some, f- making an object for someone with great intention for them and being present, like being present throughout the process to me, that would be sacred.
0: What will you remember most about this class? This year, in 30 years, God forbid, somebody (laughs) reminds you of this class and what, what stands out about us?
1: I'm tearing up a little bit. (laughs) Oh, every class is special. Like this is not like what we've experienced is not new to me and it's not every year like this, but there's just the feeling of community, especially this class. And actually, yeah, a few years, there's there's a sense of community and cohesiveness and people having this experience together. But this year, I think, is the year that I feel like what I'm bringing to it is like significant. And that doing the things that I want to do.
0: Make it (laughs) easier,
1: and that I'm honoring what Cam started, and Ken hugely contributed to in his. I think he was here for 17 years, so feeling like, yeah, I'm doing it. I'm doing justice to what they created.
0: So I wasn't gonna share this with you, but since we're both crying, (laughs) so. I struggled for the last 10 months to feel like I was creating something that was worthy of, of this place and your example. And I had a moment last week, it was actually when you sent me that email, hmm. uh, when I sent you the link to this project's website
1: mm-hmm.
0: and your reaction to that email, hmm. and I felt because I'm not a natural woodworker. Um, But I felt for the first time that with this project, I was creating something that was worthy of you you, and the example that you set. And so I think when you were talking about feeling that you were worthy of this class, I I had a little bit of that too.
1: Well, for the record, I told... I emailed Joel and just told him what a gift he had given me.
0: Well, I think I'm speaking for everybody in the class when I say thank you for the gift that you've given us You're
1: because welcome. this
0: is a gift that none of us will forget forever.
1: me neither. And um, yeah, I'm just so I'm so grateful that you've done this and you've done it so well, and it's it's another example of like just look what can happen when you give people the opportunity to do things that are meaningful to them, right? Like, I could have the same assignment, you must do this, Mm -hmm. but, like, I just don't want to do that because... Because
0: that's not great teaching. Because that's
1: not great teaching, right? So, yeah. What you did here is great teaching. And it's, thank you, thank you. And this oral history that you've created, like, I'm just so proud of it. Like, it's it's amazing. And I know that Probably applications will go up when, when word gets out because it's just, it's, it's so cool what you've done. And every single one that I've listened to, um, I've just learned something about the person and about the program. Um, and I just think it's, uh, yeah, it's just really cool what you've done.
0: Well, I want to end on you. and. None of this could be possible without the example that you set and Beth set. And I think I, I this word gets bandied around a lot, but I think what you're doing here is truly revolutionary. Oh. And I think I have 17 other witnesses who could Thank you. verify that for me. Thank you. Well, I better stop so, we, <laughs> so we're both crying. Thank you, my friend. Thank you, Joel. I appreciate it.